Our speaker this morning is Ken Davis. Ken Davis is a member of our society. He's been on our board of trustees. And he's been a major force in our adult education program, the School for Ethics. Ken has worked to create the eliciting the best course, even actually building a whole curriculum and text for it. He just finished teaching it yesterday, so the material is fresh and with him. And Ken has made, in my estimation, a major contribution to our adult education program through his ability to be a visionary and to see the direction we should go in, and also in terms of his teaching and his mentoring. So it is with a great deal of pleasure that I bring Ken as soon as the music is played. Hello. Uh, I'm Ken Davis, as Judy said. I've been a member here at the Ethical Society for over 10 years now. When I first started coming to the Ethical Society, I felt this incredible sense of relief because I found that there was a group of people here who shared some of my interest in thinking about how people act with one another. Here was a religion that said that questions about God are not the central questions. Instead, the central questions are how do we treat one another. I'm speaking today on behalf of the School for Ethics, the adult education branch here at the Ethical Society, where I've taught a course called Eliciting the Best. In the course, and in being a member here at the Ethical Society, I've learned a number of things that have made a difference in my overall level of satisfaction and happiness in life. And what I want to talk about today is just what some of those things are and how being a member here and how uh, some of the material from some of our courses and classes has made a significant difference in my life. The title for the address is Ethics, Education, and Community, Pushing Our Spiritual Envelopes. I use the phrase pushing the envelope in the same sense that they used it in the book, The Right Stuff. I think that was where I first encountered the phrase. Uh, in that book, I guess it was Tom Wolfe was talking about the test pilots who were uh, first trying to break the sound barrier and testing out new high-performance aircraft. And they were said to be pushing the envelope when they were hitting up against the limits, the capabilities, the performance envelope of the aircraft. Chuck Yeager was pushing the performance envelope of the Bell X-1 when he broke the sound barrier. So by pushing the envelope, I mean pressing up against the very limits of our capabilities. Our spiritual envelope, then, is precisely the set of capabilities that we have as human beings. That is, the capacities to create, the capacities to experience joy and the capacities to experience love. Pushing this envelope is pushing ourselves to the limits of our capacities to experience these feelings. My thesis today is that in order to unleash our full capacities for love, joy, and creativity, we must change the basic conceptual framework through which we see the world. And that in making such a change, participation in a community of people who also seek this new conceptual framework can be of great value. So what is this conceptual framework that we need to change? 
I think most of us grow up with the message that the measure of how deserving we are of love and respect depends on what we accomplish, how we behave, or who we are. Consider for a moment a baby. When we first start out, and if we're lucky, we get treated for a few, to a few months of getting our, all our needs met with no effort on our own part. Someone to change our diapers, feed us, hold us, comfort us, and all we have to do is make noise when we want something. Over time, however, we discover that we get more affection and approval when we do things that please the people around us than when we don't. These things that please the people around us start with simple pleasing behaviors, like smiling and saying dada, but soon grow into complex pleasing behaviors, like going to law school and marrying Jewish. <laughs> Early on, we decide, and I think wrongly, that it is these behaviors that are deserving of love and not us. That our parents love us for the A's on our report card, the home runs we hit in Little League, the songs we play on the piano, or how quiet and well-behaved we've been in the car to grandma's. At the time, this conclusion is tremendously empowering. It lets us believe that we can control how other people regard us simply by controlling how we perform. If we get a B instead of an A, we know that we have to work a little harder. If we do badly at our piano lesson, we just have to practice a little more. Here at the Ethical Society, we call this conceptual framework, this worldview, the value paradigm. The word paradigm means conceptual model, and this is the one that we uh, posit as, as, as the way we grow up thinking that the world works. In this model, we judge people by a set of standards, and if we judge them as meeting these standards, then we consider them deserving of our love, respect, or understanding. But if not, we regard them as undeserving and not worth our time or attention. But, of course, this sort of judgment cuts both ways. As we judge others, so do we judge ourselves. Because we have made this connection that our own, that our own goodness, our own sense of being deserving, depends on how well we do, if we fail to meet our own standards for ourselves, we lose self-esteem. Here's some examples. I see myself as a person who's extremely competent at my job, and I feel good about myself because of it. The other day, my boss asked me to rewrite a report that I gave him last week. I plunged into a depression for three days because I think that I'm losing my edge. I see myself as a good driver because I always use my signal, even when I'm changing lanes. But yesterday on my way to work, I found that I ended up pulling in front of a car and pulling into an intersection and blocking somebody from making a left turn. I was so embarrassed that I kept my head forward and faced forward and didn't look at them because I didn't want him to see me. I started to tell myself how he should have been signaling if he wanted to make a left turn. And yet, even as I approached the intersection, I saw him there and knew that that's what he was doing. 
I see myself as a person with great compassion and insight into human nature. But the other day, I was talking with a coworker and talking about my views about politics. And I saw that he was getting more and more upset with what I was saying. So I clicked into my insightful person persona and attempted to defuse his anger. But the things I said made him angry and ang angrier and angrier until he stormed out of the room and refused to talk to me. I began to doubt whether I understood anything at all about human nature and whether I was even a good person. As time goes on, we become more and more invested in this system. There's a certain safety in knowing how the system works and how to play the game. I may not feel good about myself at this moment, but I do have the comfort of knowing what I need to do in order to feel good about myself again. In growing up, this value paradigm becomes integrated into our personality. The voice that used to be our parents and teachers becomes our own internal voice. It tells us what we should or shouldn't do. It praises us when we do well and judges us harshly when we fail. Those of you who've taken our Introduction to Relationship Building course may remember the name we give to this voice. We call it our inner critic. Let's take a closer look at how the value paradigm really operates in our lives. When we're succeeding, we feel great. We work hard, and we're working hard, but we're enjoying all the rewards. Our inner critic is applauding us and telling us how good we are. But at the same time, it's reminding us that we better keep it up or we'll lose that edge. I started going to a health club and I started exercising regularly. After a few weeks, I noticed that my muscles are firmer and I can get the machines, set the machines at a higher setting. Now, I have to keep going because I don't want to lose my muscle tone and condition. If I plateau, I feel stuck and I decide that I have to increase my workout to break through. My inner critic tells me how good I'll feel if I could only lose another 15 pounds. At the prompting of the inner critic, I keep pushing myself. My inner critic has now moved from the carrot to the stick. <laughs> he threatens me with the loss of all my good feelings if I don't keep up what I'm doing. I can't say no. I belong to three committees here at the Ethical Society and I feel good about myself because the people there appreciate my contribution. Someone calls me and asks if I'm willing to work on the newsletter. I'm honored that they chose to ask me, and I don't want them to withdraw this expression of their regard, so I say yes. In this way, I keep on saying yes and taking on more and more responsibilities. I stop seeing myself as a person and begin to see myself as a machine for producing results. For example, I'm a 20-mile-a-week runner, and I had had a cold earlier this week, and now it's Thursday and I haven't gone out running yet. So I decide that I have to go out running, even though I still have my cold. When my wife comes along and says, let's go to a movie, I conclude that she's trying to sabotage my running and I get angry at her. <laughs> her usefulness depends on whether she helps me to achieve my goals. And as I abuse myself, so do I abuse others. I see them as an obstacle if they are not helping me, and I'm justified in treating them with anger 
or indifference or even cruelty. Even my own wants and needs become my enemy and I struggle to contain them, deny them, or numb them out. But no matter how hard we struggle, we never get to the end of this road. This road has no end. The inner critic will never be satisfied. We will never get to the place where we can stop struggling and enjoy our success. We never attain perfection, and we still keep making mistakes, suffering setbacks, and experiencing bad feelings. Not because we haven't tried hard enough, but because perfection just isn't possible. We are in inherently fallible beings. And the belief that we can win at the value paradigm is a false belief. But I'm not ready to hear this. I feel resentful at the successes of others. I deny my mistakes. I blame others for my problems. I rationalize my failures. It's not me, it's the recession. Finally, I'm forced to give up on this success thing. I stop buying into the inner critic. But instead of simply stepping out of the value paradigm, I use it as a rational, I claim a rationalization for giving up. I decide that I've done enough already and I'm going to rest on my laurels. Or I decide that nobody else is pulling their weight, so why should I hold them all up? But one way or another, I rationalize giving up. But if I can't do it, and all those other people seem to be able to do it, what am I missing? What's wrong with me? Maybe I lack something that other people have. For me, this comes up when I try to diet. I decide that other people can lose weight successfully because they were lucky and they have self-discipline, and I don't. I rebel against my inner critic, and I rationalize that if I can't have real success, the real success that other people have, at least I can feel good. So I go to Hardee's and pick up a couple of double R bar burgers and a chocolate shake. That works for a little while, but I feel bad again. And there are only so many burgers and shakes that I can eat before I get scared of being completely out of control. Just as the road to perfection has no end, so does the road to self-indulgence. Sooner or later, fear and isolation set in and I begin to doubt my own essential goodness. When this happens, I discover that I'm not alone, for there, waiting for me, is my inner critic. And he's just brimming with advice on what I should do to feel good about myself again. And faced with these other fears, I sign up and the whole process starts again. So, this value paradigm appears in our lives as a cycle, letting us feel good when we're doing well, but threatening us with loss of self-esteem when we're not. In the class eliciting the best, we call this cycle the vicious circle. We might have many vicious circles operating in our life, even all at the same time. We can feel good about how much we're succeeding at our job, but feel bad about our social life. These vicious circles can operate at different speeds. I have an annual vicious circle, which causes me each year to sign up for lots of things and overcommit in the fall, and then resign from things in the spring. <laughs> on the other hand, before I was married, when I was going out on dates, I could go through several vicious circles several times around in the course of a single date. 
So this value paradigm sets us up to experience our self-esteem as being on a roller coaster. It traps us on a cycle that we can never win. There's a number of major problems in living in the value paradigm. First of all, the set of standards that we uh, hold may not even be self-consistent. Each different person has a different set of expectations of themselves and of us. Sometimes these differing expectations can even contradict one another. Our parents want us to behave, and our friends want us to prove that we're not run by our parents. A coworker at the office comes into my office and talks about how another colleague isn't producing very much. And I decide that I've been slacking off a little bit lately, and I'd better get on the stick uh, before I am the butt of this same kind of gossip. Then I go home and talk to a friend about how good he feels since he started playing racquetball twice a week, and I decide that I should start some kind of regular exercise program. But I can't because I'm working late. The value paradigm is inherently crazy-making. Not only can we never achieve perfection at meeting our standards, but we can never even know for sure what those standards are. New activities and new ways and, and new experiences become threats because they introduce more standards, more things, more criteria against we, which we have to judge ourselves. They just become more sticks that we can hit ourselves with. This takes me to another cost of the value, value paradigm, the cost of making mistakes. When I operate from the value paradigm, I set myself up to put my self-esteem on the line for everything that I do and everything that I may want to try. I raise the stakes, betting my self-esteem that I will succeed. I create a life that revolves around fear, but fear has some pernicious side effects. The example I heard once and keep coming back to is the example of, a, of putting a board on the ground 20 feet long and two feet wide. And I put a $20 bill on one end. And you can have that $20 bill if you can walk across the length of the board without stepping off of it. But the board is this wide, and most of us can do that. But take that same board and put it across the roofs of two 20-story buildings and put a $100 bill on the end this time. And the same activity, the same set of motor skills, the same set of physical motions becomes almost completely impossible. We become paralyzed with fear. In the value paradigm, fear may stop us from trying new things. I yearn to dance, but I don't like feeling like I'm clumsy and awkward. So for 20 years, I simply avoided dancing. I want, I want to change my career, but I know that I can earn a living doing what I do and keep the lifestyle that I have, and I'm not sure I can succeed in the new area. So I keep the same job that I have, and I keep feeling dissatisfied. If it doesn't stop us entirely, it can still slow us down. It means that if I do try something new, I have to do a lot of advanced preparation. I have to prepare my excuses in case I fail. I have to watch my step every step of the way. Not only do I have to go out on the dance floor, but I have to watch everyone else while I'm dancing for signs that they're laughing at me. 
It takes a lot of pleasure out of the activity. <laughs> Even today, when I occasionally get up and dance, my wife will point to my face and kind of smile. She'll go, and at that time, I notice that although I'm dancing, my facial expression is like this. <laughs> and what happens in the value paradigm when I do make a mistake? For me, I've noticed that my brain goes through a series of steps. The first thing it does is to deny that I made a mistake. I didn't hear you when you asked me to pick up some more coffee. You're the one who always brings the theater tickets. I just assumed you had them. <laughs> I thought I was going the speed limit officer. Sometimes this works, and I can keep holding on to the illusion that I didn't make a mistake. But failing this, the next thing I do is look for an excuse. I left writing this platform until the last minute because I didn't really know how hard my midterm in my computer class was going to be. But when all the denial and excuses fail, I'm left with feeling bad about myself, which, because I'm operating in this value paradigm, I take on with a vengeance. I feel guilty. I berate myself. I decide that I'm basically worthless. What an idiot I am. Why did I ever agree to do this? I delude myself with the illusion that although I've made a mistake, I have paid for it heavily by feeling guilty. And because I've done my penance and paid for it, I don't actually have to look at where the mistake came from. And this leads me to the biggest cost of operating in the value paradigm, and that is that I'm unable to learn or grow. As human beings, we learn by trial and error experimentation. I bring forth an action, an idea, a behavior, and I look at how my environment responds to it. I see if it makes my parents angry. I see if it causes other people to like me. I see if it moves me toward achieving my goals or meeting my needs. And based on the responses of my environment, I may adopt the behavior, I may modify it, or I may let this behavior go and try another one. I forgot, and maybe you can help me, Lynn, but the quote was, uh, life isn't one thing after another. It's the same thing over and over again. I keep on making the same mistakes over and over again. And then, because I'm stuck, I conclude that there's nothing I can do about it, that it's just the way I am, that I have no sense of rhythm, or that I'm not the athletic type, or that I'm no good at math, or that I'm just shy. But as long as my life is wrapped up in cycling between the highs of succeeding and the lows of guilt and self-debasement, I never do have to actually take responsibility for the consequences of what I do. I had to work late and break our date. I didn't have any choice. I'm really sorry. I'm such a louse. Why do you even hang around with me? And the cycle goes on. So what do we do about it? Here I return to my original thesis, and that is that in order to unleash our full capacities for love, joy, and creativity, we must change the conceptual framework through which we see the world. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, postulated a second conceptual framework as an alternative to the value paradigm. In this new framework, which he called the worth paradigm, we base our respect and regard for people not on the evidence of their meeting a set of standards, 
but on an act of choice. We simply choose to recognize that all people possess the capacity to experience creativity, love, and joy, and that this is justification for treating people with unconditional positive regard. In this conceptual framework, we decide that human beings are inherently good and that any behavior or appearance to the contrary is not proof that we're wrong in our hypothesis, but rather it's the result of good people doing the best they can to take their own knowledge and experience and devise a strategy for getting their needs met and finding happiness. And that while this strategy may be misguided, it's misguided because it's operating from false or incomplete information, and it's not the result of any inherent badness or evil. When we choose the worth paradigm, we let go of our inner critic and we cultivate a new inner voice to replace it. This new voice, which we call the inner witness, is always able to step back from a situation and observe. It makes no judgments, it makes no demands, it just notices. I notice that I'm feeling cold. I notice that I made a mistake. I notice that that car just ran a red light. In the relationship building course, we look at four styles of communicating, which they call small talk, control talk, search talk, and straight talk. If the inner critic talks to us using control talk, the inner witness uses search talk or straight talk. I notice that I'm feeling angry. I wonder why. I notice that I'm un uncomfortable around this person. I wonder what's going on. In order to move from the value paradigm to the worth paradigm, we must understand that our will, our capacity to take actions and make choices, is separate from our thoughts and feelings. That I may feel terrified at the thought of facing my boss and asking for some guidance or direction, but I can still do it. That, as a man, I may feel humiliated at the thought of pulling over and asking for directions, but I can still do that. I may think that society, and especially my parents, expect me to have children and still decide not to. No matter what is happening, we always have the option of stepping back to the vantage point of our inner witness and observing our thoughts and feelings with impartiality and detachment. From this vantage point, we can look at what we're feeling and thinking and simply use these observations as information. Some of the information may be relevant and useful. I know that you'll be angry if I break our appointment. But some of the information we get from our inner witness may also be misinformation extrapolated from an old and incorrect model of how the world works. I may discover that I've been operating from an unconscious belief that if anyone is angry at me, it means that I've been a bad boy. But learning to step back to this inner witness position requires an act of will. Our capacity to make choices is like a muscle. Like a muscle, it's operating all the time, whether under our conscious control or not. We're choosing every day what to wear, how to be with our coworkers, whether or not to worry about the recession. Some of our choices may get made from conscious awareness, and some of them may get made from unconscious habit. 
Like any muscle, the choice muscle is strengthened when we exercise it. When our choice muscle is weak, we're susceptible to the winds of whim. The value paradigm is very appealing to us because it offers us very few hard choices. In fact, one of the most attractive characteristics of the value paradigm is that it always tells us what to do. I have to go to work because my self-esteem depends on seeing myself as a hardworking, productive member of society. Even when I'm feeling ambivalent or undecided about something, I still have an inner critic there telling me what to do. He tells me that I better make up my mind because wishy-washy people never get anywhere in this world. I strengthen my choice muscle by making choices against resistance. When I first start making these choices, the choice muscle may be flabby and out of shape. And it may take all my strength to make even simple choices. I don't know how many evenings I've struggled with whether or not to watch TV or read a book. Stepping out of the value paradigm requires us to strengthen our choice muscle. I've prepared for you some exercises and I offer them in what I perceive as increasing order of difficulty. As you try these exercises, if you do, see if you can pay attention to the inner voice that speaks to you while you do them and notice whether it is an inner critic judging you or maybe judging me and see if you can take a step back to an inner witness place of just noticing. You might start with, I notice my inner critic. Here's some of the exercises. Next time you have ice cream, instead of choosing your habitual flavors, choose a different flavor. Turn off the TV. Call or write to someone you haven't spoken to in a while. Smile at someone you usually ignore. Smile at someone you feel angry at. The next time you make a mistake, just say oops and laugh about it. Pick someone in your day and choose to take complete delight in them. This last exercise of taking delight, I think, is at the very center of the worth paradigm. To take a delight in a person is to look at them and see the joyful, innocent child at their center. When someone is acting in a way that pleases us, this is easy to do, but it gets harder when they're doing things that irritate or disturb us. And it becomes especially hard when they're doing things that we have been struggling to keep ourselves from doing. But no matter what, it's always possible to choose to ignore the things bothering us and to pay all our attention to the completely loving, cre creative being that we or they really are. I found that in giving uh, myself and others unconditional positive regard, it can be a very hard thing to do. I didn't know at the time just how strong my attachment to the value paradigm was. I noticed that I had secret thoughts of being better than this person or that person that I hated to give up. <laughs> Such thoughts didn't work in the worth paradigm. Giving up secretly feeling better than other people opened the door on all the ways that I secretly felt worse than everybody else. And those thoughts were very disturbing. I think the hardest thing about letting go of the value paradigm was the realization that I believed in the inner critic. I believed that someday, if I worked hard enough, I could reach perfection. And that on that day, bells would ring, and flowers would bloom, and doves would burst into flight, 
and everyone around me would recognize how good and deserving I am, and all my needs would be met forever, and I would live happily ever after and never have to be anxious again. <laughs> Choosing the worth paradigm means giving up this dream of perfection and replacing it with the reality that life will have times of success and good feeling and times of sadness, but that no matter what happens in the external circumstances of our life, we remain, gr we remain grounded in our own essential goodness. Felix Adler observed that utopia is not a dream for the future, but instead a right now choice that we can make at each moment. When we feel safe with our self-esteem, we're freer to be ourselves in relationships with others. More importantly, by persisting and seeing past the mask of another person's behavior and seeing the loving person inside, we open the door for that person to let let that loving person out of themselves as well. I remember feeling frustrated and angry at my wife and taking it out uh, on her by ranting and raving and banging on doors and walls. And she responded to me by saying, you seem very upset. You must be in a lot of pain. Well, I didn't know what to do. All the anger ran out of me and I burst into tears. We can choose this kind of response in all our relationships. When we feel safe with our self-esteem, we can examine our own thoughts, feelings, and motivations without attachment to any particular conclusion. It becomes safe to recognize and acknowledge our mistakes, and this opens the door for growth and learning. Some of us here today have heard some of these ideas before. Some of us may have even started integrating them into our lives. We already have some kind of notion that people are good and that we are basically good. What I want to ask you to do today is take that notion and notice the places where it gets hard to hold it. Notice the places where you do experience reservations or doubts or qualifications. And I want to suggest to you that those, in fact, are the very places to push your spiritual envelope, to challenge yourself to hold on to this state of unconditional positive regard for yourself and for others. In closing, I want to talk a little bit about the classes here at the Ethical Society and of the role of the Ethical Society community in strengthening our choice muscle and moving toward this worth paradigm. For me, the Ethical Society has been a safe place. It's been a place where I can try on new ways of being and be surrounded by people who are encouraging to me rather than people whose own internal dramas might be invested in having me play a certain role in their life. It's a place where it's safe to make mistakes. Indeed, the whole reason for having a school for ethics is that we recognize that we're not born knowing how to have good relationships, but that these skills can be learned. Uh, in our Introduction to Relationship Building course, we start from, a place, uh, from the place that at the center of good relationships is good communications, and that we can't communicate effectively unless we know what we're communicating and how we're communicating it. We learn that we can bring in our inner witness into each relationship and observe the kind of messages we're sending and how we're sending them. Um, we 
by looking at the basic communication styles, we see that we can choose a style that's consistent with the messages that we're trying to communicate. In the introduction to relationship building, we look at the inner critic and the inner witness in depth, and we learn to use the inner witness to look at incidents, those moments when something happens in a relationship and the state of the relationship alters or changes. We learn to use incidents as windows into the inner workings of our relationships and of our own psyche. From our inner witness, we can look at what's happened, bring it into awareness, and understand what I was thinking and feeling and wanting. We can even look at the patterns in our incidents and use them to discover our inner beliefs about ourselves and the world and the decisions that led to those beliefs. Um, I want to just say that a lot of the things that I've been saying today also have been part of the class Eliciting the Best, which we teach here. And uh, along with the relationship building classes and the Eliciting the Best classes, we have some advanced classes, a class called Unshakable Self-Esteem, and a class called Patterns and Choices. The closing thought I want to leave you with is the idea that this ethical society is not just a community. What it is, is a health club for developing our choice muscle. <laughs> and that the classes that we have here are like aerobics classes and instructional classes at that club. So please try on the idea of seeing it that way and see what comes of it. Thank you.